Lord God, we praise you today for your faithfulness. We praise you that you make a way where there seems to be no way. Your promises are good and faithful and true. So God, even today, remind us of your goodness, your faithfulness, your justice, your mercy, and your love. And Lord, would you be glorified in and through us, your church, as we meet together today with you and with one another. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Would you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? for today comes from John 6, 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up, to the, went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were, who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jason, for the reading. Good morning, Redemption. How are you? Good to see you again. Happy New Year. Uh, if you're new here, we, we're glad that you are here. My name is Frank. I'm the Lead pastor here at Redemption Church, Arcadia. Um, if you're not familiar with Redemption, we're one church with 10 congregations in Arizona. Today we officially opened our 10th, uh, North Mountain. They're having their inaugural uh, in-person service today, so we're excited about that. And uh, Redemption Church is, is a church that is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church that is gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Um, 
I guess I can't really start today without mentioning that um, 2020 has not gotten off to a very good start after our review last week of, I'm sorry, 2021 has not, it's like it's 2020 all over again, I don't know. So uh, somebody mentioned to me this week, sent me a text that said that um, uh, they were unhappy with their seven-day free trial on 2021, and they would like to go back to 2020 or 19 or 18 or 17. Um, it's been rough. I, it's already a little weird, isn't it? Uh, if you're an NFL fan, I'm not much of an NFL fan, but I do know enough about the National Football League to know that it's strange that the Cleveland Black Browns will be playing a playoff game today. So that's already an indication that 2020 is bad. Uh, 2021. I'm really stuck in 2020. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. Uh, I imagine that 2021 will end up this way. Um, it's so strange that the Arizona Coyotes will actually go to the finals of the Stanley Cup playoffs where they will lose in game seven on a disputed goal. And the worst part of that is going to be that they'll lose to the Boston Bruins. That's kind of how 2021 is going to end up, I think. In all seriousness, I think one of the things that we're seeing is that people, are, uh, people understand, we should understand this, uh, unity and common ground cannot be monetized. Unity and common ground cannot be monetized. Division is what gets clicks. And so there's a, a force, a darkness, behind what is happening. Whether you're on the left or on the right, try to understand the wickedness that's happening behind everything that's going on in our culture. And that, I know this sounds arrogant, but we're, the church of Jesus Christ is the only one that has the answer, and that's the gospel, the good news. And so we need to be, more than ever, we need to be called during this time to be the church, to show people what it means to be people who follow Jesus and who understand is good news, and I hope that's what we can do uh, at Redemption Church. Uh, and it's interesting that would come up even today. I didn't plan any of this. Today is our 10-year anniversary as a church. It was 10 years ago that we, uh, we became the result of a merger between two great churches that became better together, and that was East Valley Bible Church and Praxis Church of Tempe and uh, Arcadia. And so we're excited about that. We're so excited that we even made T-shirts. So we do have T-shirts in the lobby if you would like to. You know, we gotta we got to um, capitalize on every one of these things for us. So we do have T-shirts for sale in the lobby, and you can see Andrea for that. Uh, Tyler Thompson was sporting the black today, if you were wondering about that. Um, I also wanted to mention that last week we did a little... Uh, financial update, which was uh, for our congregation, which was good news. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention because I didn't have the uh, number yet from uh, Jason in, uh, at Redemption Central, but I got it this week. Um, our Advent offering, which was over and above all the other offerings that we took in, in December, our Advent offering this year was uh, in excess of $45,000 which is something that we're going to be splitting three ways between redemption, foster care, and adoption alongside PRISM Ministries uh, and uh, reach, uh, Arizona, REACH AZ, which uh, is Juan Chavez's ministry. So that's really good news, and we thank you very much for all of that. Uh, also, in order to help us understand and celebrate um, our 10-year anniversary, uh, Redemption Central put together this uh, four-minute video that we're going to watch now. So go ahead and take a look at that. 
They're supposed to be sound, right? Can we start it over with sound? We ran this thing, no kidding, I was in here today, this morning. We ran this thing ten times and the sound was fine. (laughs) Satan is at work again. Okay, during this time, if you could all go to the lobby and buy shirts. Caleb, should we uh, move on? And... A, a moment of incredible... Okay, can you go ahead and start over again? <laughs> this is Tom Schrader. This is a guy so I talk about every week. you look back and you say, here's this thing that God did in my life that was a, a, a moment of incredible teaching for me. Almost always at the moment it came, we would have resisted it and said, I don't want it. It's not good. It's bad. God's the one who's in control. My my hope is in Christ. I know all of this is a mess. So life throws this thing at you, whatever it is. Not saying it doesn't hurt. Not saying it's going to take your breath away. But once you catch your breath, once you feel your father's hug, once you know it's okay, get back in the game. That's all. Today, we're facing the kind of challenge that we heard Tom refer to, both as a nation and as the church. It doesn't feel like a time for celebration, but we do have something to celebrate. Redemption Church is celebrating 10 years, a decade of being family, a beautiful and beautifully diverse family, full of people from different places, with different backgrounds, stories, experiences, and preferences but unified by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are one church in 10 local congregations across the state of Arizona that is spreading the good news of the gospel that justifies the sinner, exalts the humble, frees the prisoner, and adopts the orphan. Our mission is to birth and strengthen healthy local congregations. And by God's grace, that's been our story for the last 10 years. We are in awe of the Lord's work in and through redemption as He intricately weaves together a tapestry of believers being made into who they were truly meant to be. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, friends and family, and according to 1 Corinthians 12, 12, members of one body. We are family, and we celebrate these last 10 years with thankfulness for a loving God who has been faithful on the mountaintops and in the darkest of valleys.
we know and trust that He has equipped us with everything we need for this journey of life. And as the years come, we'll live them together because that's what families do. Here's what's really cool. I know how our story as believers ends. I don't know all the specifics along the way and there's some subtleties and twists and turns I don't know, but I know how the story ends. He told you, you'll be with him forever. Whenever there's an anniversary Sunday, I always find myself looking back and, and I'm, I'm glad and thrilled to see what God has done. I just hope that he's not done. better with the sound, isn't it? And I'm going to get Stephanie for sending that video in to them. So, um, well, that was interesting, too. 2021 sucks. <laughs> uh, well, let's pray, and we're going to get back into John, and we're going to look at the first 21 verses of chapter 6 in John today. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for the vision that... Uh, was brought about by Tom Schrader and Justin Anderson, Tyler Johnson, Neil Pitchell, and all the others who worked so hard to make redemption a reality. And now as we continue, we just, uh, we, we pray and we thank you for uh, a great 10 years and we pray for the next 10 years. We also pray for Redemption North Mountain and for Josh and his team and crew who are uh, opening up today. We pray for them. We pray for um, Tyler James, our own Tyler James, who is up in Flagstaff preaching today and helping Flagstaff. It's one of the great parts of being uh, part of something bigger, part of a family, that we can help each other and rely on each other and pray for each other. So God, I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us in that. And I pray that as we open your word again, that we would uh, be given insight, that we would not just be given knowledge, but we would be given wisdom, that we would not uh, simply be brilliant but foolish, but rather we would be brilliant because we've been given your wisdom. Help us with that now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are working our way through the Gospel of John. We spent 16 weeks in it last fall. And then we took a break for Advent and uh, the beginning of the year. And during those 16 weeks, we got through the first five very long chapters of John. And we pick it up today, like I said, at the beginning of chapter 6. And we're looking at, at two accounts today that are probably familiar even to people who don't go to church. So if you've never been to church, you're going to hear about something today that 
uh, maybe you've heard of or you're familiar with or you think you know, but we're going to go a little bit deeper, and that is the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on water. Um, what's interesting about this passage today is, is uh, we have to remember what we talk about today for next week to truly be set in context and to make sense as well. Uh, chapter 6 is in excess of 70 verses. And the reality is, is that it might be best to preach all 70 of those verses together because of the way it flows, the, the way the narrative is set up by John. We simply can't do that. We don't have the time to be able to do that. And so for continuity's sake, um, this week today is really important to help understand the next two weeks as we go through it. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, one of the things that comes to mind is this whole feeding of the 5,000 event. So there is some continuity today. Also, um, when, when I've looked back over the first five chapters and, and sort of the themes of who Jesus is that we have proclaimed and studied and talked about over and over and over during those 16 weeks, uh, there are recurring patterns and themes of who Jesus is. And we're going to see, again, going forward, those same recurring patterns and themes. Uh, and th those themes and patterns are the fact that, that Jesus is God and he is sovereign over all creation. He's sovereign. He has all authority over all creation as well. And he chooses how to implement that authority. We... We can pray, but we can't push him into implementing that authority in a way that would please us or that would be our preference because he knows how to use his authority for what is ultimately his good purpose, which we should understand is ultimately our good purpose as well. Even though, as Tom said in the video, there are times in our lives when we don't like what God has for us. We'd rather be doing something else. We'd rather be going through something else. We'd rather God would take us out of what we're going through. But then later on, we're able to look at it and understand how God was working in our lives during that very difficult time. It's during those difficult times that we begin to understand when we reflect God's sovereignty and authority in a much more graceful and compassionate way. We also have seen and will see Jesus' provision he is the great provider as well. We'll see his restoration. He's all about restoration. Uh, when he multiplies things or turns things into other things, like he did the water with the wine, we are seeing his restoration, the power of his restoration, and all of that leads into his life, that Jesus gives life. And we'll see those things again and again, not only in these two events today, but also going forward for the rest of the Gospel of John. Now, it seems, like I said, that both of these stories would be so familiar to just about anybody, even people who, who aren't, aren't, don't read the Bible and aren't familiar with church. But my plea today is that you and I would approach, no matter how familiar you think you are with these two events in the Gospel of John, that we would approach these two accounts as though we've never heard them before. I want us to approach this today with fresh ears, fresh eyes, fresh hearts, fresh minds, even fresh elbows, if you want to throw those in there. Because some of the most significant aha moments in reading and studying Scripture come when we approach Scripture with humility. 
when we understand that we don't know everything about it already, no matter how much we've studied it. Uh, I know as a pastor that one thing that pastors like to do is they like to preach through a section of Scripture and then hang on to that sermon so that later, if they're ever called to preach through that section of Scripture again, they can just go and get that sermon out. And I discovered very early that that wasn't a very helpful practice because the Holy Spirit has a way of illuminating in the text for you things that you need to know in a particular time and context and space that wasn't necessarily helpful before. You need to go back and approach the Scripture even if you've taught it before, even if you've read it before, you've studied it before, you need to go back and approach that scripture as if you haven't read it before so that you can understand what God is doing for you in and through that piece of scripture at that moment in, in that context. So we need to approach it with humility. We need to slow down. We need to slow down when we read scripture. We need to quit... We read most things informationally, and that's the way we need to read things in the marketplace, and that's good. But with Scripture, we shouldn't just be reading it informationally. We should be reading it formationally. We should understand how the Scripture is used by God to transform us. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for that illumination. And one of the big things we need to do is set aside our presuppositions when we approach Scripture, which always include... First of all, what we think we already know about a Bible passage. And second of all, what we desperately want the Bible passage to say in order to affirm us in our current place and time rather than telling us what it really says. Because what it really says might mean that we're going to have to have some work to do in our lives. So what I'm going to do is just walk through these uh, 21 verses. And uh, again, I'm very excited. I'm very excited today. I, I, I showed this to somebody as, as uh, they were walking in. I said, hey, I have my laser pointer. What does that mean? And they said, you've got a map today. Yes, we have a map today. So, And I'm going to use it twice. So here we go. Verses 1 and 2. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus has got a following now. Here's the map. And this is the Sea of Galilee, so this is the sea that we're talking about. Up here, sort of in the northwest area of the Sea of Galilee, is Capernaum, which is where he's been ministering. So he goes across the sea, the north part of the sea, over to this area near Bethsaida. And he's in the northeast side of this. This is where all of this takes place, but we're going to see when he walks on water that that's when they're heading back to uh, Capernaum. And this area right here is uh, the, the width of that is probably in the five to six mile uh, range right there on the Sea of Galilee. So that helps uh, uh, center us in the geography of where uh, he is. So he's left Capernaum now. He's on the, on the northeast side. And he left, at least in part, he left the area where he was in order to get away from the growing and ever-present problem of, because of his miracles... People wanting to make Jesus into a Messiah that he was not. They wanted to make him king. We even see that in verse uh, 15. And John, th there are four or five different Greek words that you could pick to, to use for miracles or signs or works or wonders. John specifically picks the Greek word means sign, a sign that is pointing to something else to describe his miracles. 
And the reason that John keeps calling these miracles signs is because the point of the miracles is not the temporal healing or the happiness that results from the miracles, which, by the way, is not bad. I'm not saying those things are bad. It's good that those things happen, and people should celebrate that. I've been healed. I can see now. Water has turned into wine. These are all good things. It's not that we shouldn't celebrate those, but that's not the ultimate purpose of the miracles. They are signs. The ultimate purpose of these signs is to point the people to God and to salvation, to Jesus as Redeemer, to the restoration of the creation and for atonement of sin. But people struggle with that because we want our Jesus swag. That's what we want. And we need to hear this. John's purpose for writing the gospel is affirmed when he uses the word sign instead of miracle over and over and over because the purpose is to point us to Jesus so that we might believe and have life. Now, this feeding of the 5,000, which we're going to get into in these next uh, 12 or 13 verses, uh, can we, uh, first of all, just acknowledge uh, some of the logistical and practical challenges of all of this that we tend to just run by? Uh, first of all, to gather 5,000 people anywhere in the first century was a, quite a feat in itself. So Jesus, without... Uh, without the help of the internet or digital communication or social media platforms or anything, he's gathered now 5,000 men. We need to remember it's 5,000 um, men. So there's the possibility that there's, scholars say, as many as 15 or 20,000 uh, 20, people there because they're just talking about men because that's all they would count then is men. Now, maybe it was just men and everybody else was excluded, but we doubt it because there was a little boy there. We know. So there were at least there was at least one child there, so there were probably other children. There were probably women there. So think when you hear five thousand, think ten or fifteen thousand people. So this is this is quite a, a, a logistical nightmare. And and if and if you've done any catering at all, imagine having a buffet for five thousand people. I mean, this is just not an easy thing to do. And there's all kinds of other problems, logistical problems as well, that we're going to see. Look at verses 3 through 7. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Well, 200 denarii worth of bread is, would not be enough to feed each of them to have a little bit. Of course, the Passover setting conjures up thoughts of the Exodus and manna and bread for heaven. It also makes me wonder why, this is interesting, why they're not all headed to Jerusalem instead of gathering around Jesus, because the Passover is one of those um, pilgrimage uh, feast. So that's a question that's kind of left un unanswered. In verse 7, so, so Philip throws out this 200 denarii, okay? 200 denarii, in case you're wondering, is about eight months' wages. So whatever you would make in eight months, that's what he's, what he's saying. He's saying eight months' wages, two-thirds of a year's salary, would not even be enough to buy enough food uh, for, for them to get enough to eat. And we have no idea why Philip came up with that particular amount. I think his point simply was, Brother Jesus, no matter how you look at it, we don't have enough bread for the bread. That's the problem. It, it was just an arbitrary number to, to help us understand that they didn't have the resources to buy the food. 
But here's an even bigger problem. And the reason Philip's involved in this, apparently, is, is because Philip is from this area. So he knows the area. Um, and, and he would know that there is no town or city anywhere close to them that is going to have enough bread to be able to feed more than 5,000 people. So, so even if they had the money, they wouldn't be able to go somewhere. There isn't a Grubhub situation going on. There isn't a caterer there who has a, a stock of food big enough to feed all of these people. Everybody lived pretty much hand to mouth during that time. They didn't have big storerooms filled with, uh, with bread. And so we move into verses 8 through 11, the next four verses. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they Wanted. Well, these four verses are the core of this 5,000 feeding narrative. Verse 9 says, barley loaves and fish. So we know, first of all, that the reference, the specific reference to the fact that the grain was barley tells us that the loaves were loaves of poverty. This is the, this is the lowest level bread that you could possibly bring to a gathering. It's, it's the bread that nobody really wants, but it is food. Okay, and, and the fish, the fish were either smelt or sardine, and so they were very small, and they were pickled and dried in order to be able to keep a little bit. So what's the point of the barley loaves and the tiny little fish? What the, what the point is here is that Jesus did not multiply something that was already wonderful, like San Francisco sourdough and grilled salmon, the little piccata sauce. That's not what he did. Essentially what he did was he multiplied from nothing. And considering the circumstances, it's like they had nothing. They had, yes, they had these five little barley loaves and these two little fish, but what are they for so many? It's as though he is multiplying, but it's, those, it's, it's as though he's creating out of nothing. And so I think we should and could go as far as to say that this is a picture of the Creator God, and Jesus is Creator. We'll read that in Colossians a little bit later. That, that this is a picture of the Creator God creating something out of nothing. It's a demonstration, again, of Jesus' sovereignty, His authority, His provision, and His power. God as Creator. And then verse 11. Jesus gives thanks. Jesus gave thanks. Are we thankful? Do we even understand what it means to be thankful? Uh, if you were here last week or watched um, online, you, you know that I've been reading an author named Hampton Sides lately. And uh, two of the three books uh, that I've read, Into the Kingdom of Ice and Ghost Soldiers, uh, really played into this idea of being thankful for me. Into the Kingdom of Ice is the story of the of the ship Jeanette that was taken in the early 1880s uh, to try to find a way to the North Pole through water. The, the, the prevailing science in the early 1880s was that the North Pole was actually part of a warm tropical sea, but you had to get through ice in order to get there. 
you know how science is always right about everything. That's fascinating to me. That was the prevailing science, that because the earth is not perfectly round, it's flat at the top and the bottom, it's closer to the core of the earth, so they surmised that there was going to be a tropical sea up there, and if you could just get through the ice, you would be at the North Pole, and it would be wonderful and warm, and you wouldn't have to wear a coat. Okay, they found out otherwise. Three years just of horrible, horrible conditions for these men. And not everybody made it out alive. And then Ghost Soldiers is a story of uh, liberating the prisoners of war who were part of the death march of Bataan. If you know anything about that, you know how bad um, that was. My father served in World War II. He, he was a, a gunnery officer on the USS Farragut, a destroyer in the Pacific for three years. And he saw lots of action, wrote a couple of books about it, um, and was severely traumatized by much of what he saw. Uh, my high school guidance counselor at North High School actually was uh, somebody who marched in the Death March of Bataan and made it out alive and um, wrote a book about that. Uh, reading these books helped me to understand how thankful we really should be with what we have, where we are, the freedoms we have, the access we have. Reading stuff like that, the historical stuff, helps me. Um, but instead, and again, I think the events of this last week again continue to affirm this. I, I looked for just the right, I spent time looking for just the right word to describe what I think our current cultural ethos should be defined by. Um, and it was hard to find a word that I think is dark enough and real enough for who we've become as a people. So I thought about ungrateful. Uh, it's true, but it's kind of soft. I thought about unappreciative. Again, it's true, but not strong enough. I thought about indifferent and apathetic. Yes, we are, to some extent. Are we joyless? Yeah, seems that way. Are we miserable? You bet we are. And the funny thing about that, the ironic thing about that, is I think most of that is self-inflicted. Um, here's one that I think is getting close. We're petulant. We're petulant. But here's the one that I finally settled on. We are aggrieved. We are aggrieved about everything. We find a grievance in everything. Just, it's, like, it's like we've become grievance detectors. There isn't anything good enough. There isn't anything, there isn't anything that is without offense of some Kind. But even that's not the real problem, especially for Christians. It's the, the, the being aggrieved is, is a root of the problem and it's a sour note. But the lack of appreciation, the ungratefulness, the apathy and the indifference, the miserableness, our petulance and our, our aggrieved nature has to do with something worse. We as a people lack humility and we lack grace and we lack the ability to forgive others. Now, here's where I'm supposed to say, not you, of course, you're here in church and you're Christians, but whether you think that's true about yourself or not, look around. Look on social media. Talk to people at work. This is what we've become. And to be thankful people specifically sets up 
and seeds the soils for us to be graceless, arrogant, and stubborn, which is exactly the opposite of who Jesus is. Jesus sat down with barley loaves and pickled sardines, and he gave thanks. It's the first thing he did. Don't miss that. Verses 12 through 14. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Again, look at the provision of Jesus. There's a lot left over as well. And that verse 14 is a reference to Moses, the Moses prophet. So they get the reference. They, they're seeing this as another manna event, um, the, the exodus and being in the wilderness. But we need to understand that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's more than just an, a, a second Moses. Jesus is more than, than one who delivers a people temporarily and temporally through a sea. But rather, he's the atonement for our sin. He's the savior of our souls. He's the redeemer of our broken life. And he's the restorer of who God originally created us to be. And you look at verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's, it's so interesting how we want salvation, deliverance, and extrication. But we want it our way with our person done so that we are not inconvenienced and we are not uncomfortable. So we desire salvation, we desire deliverance, but we want to make sure that it's the easiest path possible. And the challenge with that, the problem with that, again, as you heard Tom on the video saying, the problem with that is that we're going to miss some pretty special stuff. The times that I've grown the most in my life have never been when things were easy. They've always been when things were tough. It's not that I go around, and Peter says this in one of his letters, it's not that I go around looking for trouble. That's foolishness. And the reason you shouldn't go around looking for trouble is because trouble is going to find you. We live in a world where trouble will find you. Just hang on a minute. If you're not in trouble now, just wait a minute. It's coming. But the point is, when, when James says, the testing of our faith will produce perseverance or endurance or patience or steadfastness. The point is, is that as God walks with us through the tough times, we come out on the other end with a greater understanding, with a higher level of wisdom, with more compassion and empathy, because Jesus has taken us through that. It's not quite being crucified, but in a sense, it is our crucifixion so that we understand compassion and grace, and forgiveness and love and empathy. So Jesus creates and provides because he's God, and now he walks on the water, these six verses. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to him. Come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. 
Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So, again, you look at the map one more time. There, there it is. They're, they're done up here. They're heading back here. So this is about five or six miles here across. So Jesus probably picked them up right around there. Pretty, he's getting, they're getting close. They're maybe a mile or two from getting back to Capernaum. And it was very common on this large body of water. This body of water is um, uh, 15 miles by eight miles across. It's a pretty big body of water. But it was really common on this body of water for there to be sudden turbulence, very sudden turbulence, like out of, you would say, that came out of nowhere. Uh, So why is because on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, so the side they were going to, there there are very high mountains. And and so there would be cool air coming over the mountains. And then they would rush down the mountains into the valley where the sea is. And check this out. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Just think about it. I mean, Death Valley is, what, 200 feet below sea level? And we think that's really low. This is is 700 feet below sea level. And so the water is always very warm on, on the surface of the sea. So when those two collide, it creates turbulence, not only in the atmosphere over the sea, but also in in the sea, in the waves. And so Jesus is walking across this turbulence, this water. And there are two common explanations for what really happened. It's not a miracle. He's not walking on water. The two common explanations was they didn't realize how close they were to the shore, and he's just walking on the shore. Okay. The other, the other explanation is that there uh, existed at one time in the Sea of Galilee, in the northwest area, a sort of shelf that was just a couple of feet below the, the, the water line. That shelf isn't there anymore, of course, but there used to be a shelf there, then people could walk out there, and, and people, well, but, but, but why were the disciples frightened if that was true? Why were they so frightened? Why were they terrified? John gives us that indication to help us understand that he's walking on water. This is a sign. This is a miracle. This is a supernatural event. I personally love how in every instance of trying to explain the miracles of Jesus, the erudite, secularist, and scholarly explanation always leads to further and manifestly more difficult questions to answer. Um, I I remember sitting in, if if you know who Craig Evans is, he's a wonderful New Testament scholar, uh, wrote a, a commentary on the book of Mark that's considered the gold standard for uh, Mark commentaries. He taught at Fuller Seminary uh, one semester. He was a guest teacher, and uh, my friend Chris Chandler and I got into his class, and he taught the book of Mark. And during the lecture, he talked about how, um, he talked about the swoon theory. Has anybody ever heard the swoon theory that, that, uh, of Jesus on the cross, you know? So Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He swooned. He faked his death. He was able to lower his blood pressure so low that they couldn't tell if he had a pulse and he appeared to be dead and everybody looked at him, thought he was dead, but then he got into the tomb and he woke up and he pushed that 4,000 pound uh, stone away by himself and was able to walk out by himself. And, and Evan simply said, if you believe that, your faith is stronger than mine that believes in the resurrection. 
And that's my point about the, the, the pains that, that people can go through to try to explain some of these miracles create larger questions that are even more difficult to answer. So what exactly is the point of Jesus walking on the water? Because it kind of feels like he's just showing off, right? What's the point of it? Well, there's two things. Number one, he's showing us again that he is sovereign over creation because he's the creator. He created. God created all things through him, and so now he's showing. I'm, that means I'm also sovereign over uh, creation. And, and one of the things that this would include here is also a reversal of the strong cultural assumption and understanding in their context. Um, many peoples believe this, but the Jews especially believed that chaos and other gods of the world resided in the deep sea. So chaos is something that a first century Jewish person would, would consider dark and evil. And then, of course, the gods of the world Another thing that would be at odds with Yahweh, the one true God. Those, many of those things resided deep in the sea, and so Jesus walking across the water was showing that he was above all of those things. Consider Isaiah 66, verse 1, where God says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The second thing is that we need to understand is that Jesus is the antidote to fear. Fear is something that we all struggle with. Fear is the natural condition of humanity. Again, reading Hampton Sides, these two stories into the kingdom of ice and ghost soldiers, there are many heroes in these, in these uh, stories. And these heroes were afraid. Just because they did courageous things didn't mean that they weren't afraid. And it talks about uh, the fears that they encountered and yet so many of these leaders in these books, as they were afraid, from George DeLong to Henry Mucci to Robert Prince, they were afraid. And yet, uh, Hampton Sides is not bashful about talking about what great men of faith they were. These historical captains and leaders often preached sermons to their men in the middle of what they were going through. They would teach them Bible studies, they would quote scripture, and they would encourage them in their faith. Fear is vanquished in the presence of Jesus. Fear as terror is vanquished in the presence of Jesus. But there's also a different kind of fear that they're experiencing here. It's the fear that results when we are confronted with the confounding power and authority of God, as Jesus is clearly demonstrating by walking on water. You, you see that. There, there's going to be just some wonder in that. And, and you're going to feel very small in the midst of that. See, he brings everything under his feet. He is Lord. Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 1. Let me read that to you. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he's creator and Lord. And he is therefore before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in that everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Psalm 29 says this, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give his strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So as we go through these 21 verses, I think three essential items among many, but three essential items sort of emerge and we can pull out. We remember that Jesus is creator, and as creator, he creates out of nothing. And as creator, the second thing is that we understand that Jesus is Lord over all of creation. So he's Lord over us. And as creator, we find that Jesus is also grateful and thankful. And that becomes a type of picture of the gospel, the good news that is Jesus Christ. We are created in the image of God. That's what we're told in chapter 1 of Genesis. And James reminds us of that in chapter 3 of, of his little letter. We are created in the image of God. We're created for relationship and community. And we're created to be, be little creators out of what God has given us. We, we were created to work like God Worked, we bear his image in those ways. And yet, being created in the image of God and being created perfect and placed in paradise, we sinned against God and his good creation. But Jesus is Lord over creation, and therefore he's Lord over even sin and Lord over us. And this is why he came to us as a human and to sacrifice himself for us so that we could have forgiveness and redemption. Read Philippians chapter 2, Paul's excellent treatise on that. And therefore, we can and should live grateful lives. Lives that reject the cultural notion of victimhood, grievance, and rage, and embrace the fact that God has just genuinely and truly blessed us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, we are thankful for who you are, who your Son is and what you've done for us in your Son. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who's with us even now. And I pray that we would welcome your Spirit. We thank you for your Word and its truth and the wisdom that we find in it. God, I just pray that we would be students of your Word so that, not so that we could win Bible trivia or Bible jeopardy, but rather that we would be students of your Word so that we could know you. Know the wisdom that comes from knowing you. So help us to be able to do that. We thank you for uh, the narratives that we looked at today and what they can mean for us today. So God, help us with that. Help us to apply those things to our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have our time of of reflection and response. We're going to take communion together. If you don't have a communion kit, they're available in the lobby. And now would be a great time for you to go ahead and grab one of those. And as we uh, do that, we're also going to sing one last song. And then Tyler's going to give us a blessing at the end. We remember during this time that we take the Lord's Supper. The words of Jesus that he said to his, really his best friends, even though he knew one of them was going to betray him, his best friends on that last night, he said, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they had done that, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in this cup. 
the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul reminds us that every time we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death looking back until he comes again looking forward. So we're going to do that now. You at home that are watching on the live stream, I hope you have your elements ready. If not, now would be a good time to pause and and go and get those elements ready and we can take communion together and sing this last song together. Full say. 
good news. Praise God. We have cinnamon rolls. That's good news too. Out that door to the left, they'll be available just after the service. Now let me read you this benediction from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.